Deep in the valleys of the Ozarks, lore tells of a terrifying horned beast with glowing eyes and the power to either bring luck to those who see it or predict their death. This monster is known as the Ozark Howler, and on today's episode of the Monster Folklorist with Jack Daly, we'll dive into the legends surrounding this creature. As it turns out, America's Ozark Howler has strong resemblances to the black dogs of British and Irish folklore, and their legends express an anxiety about the encroaching age of industrialism. As the name suggests, legends of the Ozark Howler come from the Ozark region, which is a portion of the United States that comprises Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and a sliver of Kansas. The area is very beautiful. It's full of dense forests, large lakes, and idyllic waterfalls. Even though the stories of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer are from a little bit northeast of the main region of the Ozarks in Missouri. You could possibly see Huck and Tom making their adventures through this region. And actually, Mark Twain National Forest is in the Ozarks. So that's kind of the region that we're talking about. But in this area, there's something else that is said to lurk amongst, you know, these forests and these idyllic waterfalls, and that's the Ozark Howler. I want to start off with some descriptions of the creature, and that's always kind of difficult with monsters because by their very nature, they defy classification. But generally, the Ozark Howler is said to be a gigantic cat. Uh, Sometimes it's said to be as big as a bear, but There's some disagreement. Sometimes it's described more as a canine. Sometimes it's actually described more looking like a bear. But, you know, the thing is, is that it's a large creature that stands on four legs, vaguely cat, vaguely dog, maybe bear-ish. But what really distinguishes it is it's two horns that it has on its head and these glowing red eyes. So that's basically what the Ozark Howler looks like. Giant, standing on four legs, huge horns, red eyes, and it's also described as having black shaggy hair. Now this takes us into an interesting direction because when you think of a giant creature like this that has shaggy hair, if you're like me, you might think of the black dogs and the spectral hounds of Europe specifically of England and Ireland. Now, we're going to get deep into this later in the episode, but this shaggy hair and red eyes, I think, kind of clues us into the the thing that's really going on here, which is that the Ozark Howler is kind of a migratory legend of the British and Irish and also from all over Europe, but these spectral hounds and their incorporation into North American folklore through the emigration of, you know, these people moving into the Ozark region. It's also said to have a horrific howl, 
which is said to be a mix of an elk's bugle and a hyena's laugh. Now, this howl has different meanings depending on how many times you hear it. Um, If you hear it once, it's more of a good omen, but if you hear it three times, it's going to be predicting your death. And uh, I think that this is kind of similar to the banshee. The, the black dogs are also similar to what's called the Kushi, which is the black dog of Celtic folklore. And the Banshee, you might not know this, but it's actually related to the She, which are the mythological race. So I think that the, it makes sense to have some carryover, some resemblances between the Banshee and the legends of the Ozark Howler, given this likely connection to the Kushi and these other uh, black dogs. So one of the places that we can get a lot of the information about the Ozark Howler is actually this very small book called Tales of the Ozark Howler. It was written by a man named Saul Ashton in the 1920s. And what it is, it's basically a collection of uh memories and narratives that he had collected himself uh, of people's encounters with the Ozark Howler, as well as archival research that he conducted and um, citations from things like newspapers and other reports of the Howler. So the, the Ozark Howler, taking this book at its surface value, it actually seems to be pretty prevalent around you know, the early 20th century. I don't think it's quite as popular anymore. You still see it appearing in media every now and then. Um, There's an episode of Expedition X, uh, as well as, I mean, you know, some of these shows about supernatural folklore, they'll have an episode of Ozark Howler, but I don't think that it's quite as well known. So what happened with this book is that Saul Ashton, He was uh, from Arkansas. He was from the Arkansas region of the Ozarks. And this was a very Christian area, still is. But he fell in love with an African-American woman, and his family wouldn't allow them to get married. So he became very disillusioned with his his, racist family, basically. And he disavowed Christianity because he saw these values of racism being aligned with their Christianity because that was at the core of their being. So he he gave that up and he adopted communism as uh, his, you know, primary look of the world. So this was a, a communist man in Christian uh, anti-communist Arkansas. So he already was kind of a, operating outside the paradigm. And he's got an interesting introduction to the book. It's not clear whether he is actually saying that the Ozark Howler exists. The the narratives that he collected would suggest that these people actually were having encounters with it, but he's viewing it more allegorically. Um, and he kind of sees it as, he says that it's unappreciated by those whose attention is easily distracted by bright, shining things. And when he's talking about that, he's he's talking about this endur- emerging industrial capitalism uh, that is really centered out of New York City. He goes 
against the the people in Manhattan. I mean, he goes on diatribes against them in in this introduction. So he sees the you know the the urban America, the wealthy urban America, as being opposed to the rural urban or the rural America that he lives in, and the Ozark Howler is kind of a symbol of that wilderness that he is still living in, that he sees as kind of disappearing. So I think that that's one of the main metaphors that uh, he he sees in the Ozark Howler. He says that the Ozark Howler also speaks of a connection to the land and self-sufficiency and of a world not controlled by businessmen and church figures. He says... I really like this quote from the introduction. He says that the monster is one who does not rely on a boss. So again, he's going against this kind of emerging capitalist system that I think he sees as encroaching on his own life. And he he also speaks very self-consciously throughout the book about people viewing the people of the Ozarks you know, wealthy elites seeing the people as the Ozarks as not being able to really speak for themselves or not being very intelligent. And um, I think he sees the monster as a representative of the life that he that might be lost or, or being lost for them. And ultimately, he sees the land that the monster lives in as a space where the human can still hope to be free. So, after his death, his family actually took the book out of circulation. They really didn't like it. They saw him as being anti-Christian. Everything that he was trying to stand for, his family saw it as being, you know, basically the antithesis of everything they stood for. So, they took it out of circulation upon his death. But in 2019, uh, a man named Hawthorne Cornus actually got the 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 original text from the surviving members of the Ashton family and reproduced it and he has a really interesting note in the acknowledgement sections Hawthorne Corners he said I also wish to thank my ex-wife Cecilia for the motivation she provided me to see this project through to the end in the form of her regularly delivered lectures about how any effort Related to the Ozark Howler is a fool's errand. I am sure that without these admonishments, my efforts to see the project through its rough spots would have soon diminished. So I thought that that was hilarious. He's basically saying, thank you to my ex-wife for always yelling at me when I wanted to do this project. And it wouldn't have been without her admonishing me. Uh, I wouldn't have had the you know, wherewithal to see this project through. So I thought that that was really funny. But anyway, the, the, the book had to be reproduced and it's very short. It's, it's like a hundred pages long, but there is some interesting stuff in there. So I want to move into some of the accounts that he actually has included in the text itself. The first speaks of a family near Fort Smith, Arkansas, and this family, they're out on a, a family camping trip, and they've, they've tried to get away from this area, Fort Smith. They don't live there. They come back. It's where their family is from, though. 
And while they're camping, they're stalked by a creature that the two children in the family say uh, was this horned beast with red eyes and a terrifying shriek. They described it as stalking the campsite and having thick muscular legs, tangled woolly black fur, larger than any bull, and with horns that would put the Texas Longhorn to shame. So I wanted to include this just because it really gives, I think, a good description of what the Ozark Howler is said to look like. And I think that the fact that it takes place during a camping trip is kind of telling because campsites and camping in general is kind of a liminal activity because you're in between the complete wilderness and civilization. And so oftentimes camping becomes a place where these legends can be told. So I thought that that was kind of an apt place to start with purely based off of the description and the place that it was taking place in as well. Another is described by an Eastern Kansas man. And so the Ozarks only come into a very, very small sliver of Southeastern Kansas But this Kansas man describes going to the store and he was trying to get some, I think, paper towels or something like that. And while he was there, he actually saw the Ozark Howler break into this country store, essentially. The man became trapped in the store with the Ozark Howler and he describes it as eating the sweet rolls that were at the front of the store and also letting out a shriek that sounded like the mix between a metal blade and being scraped over stone which i thought was an interesting description of the sound itself but the lore in the book says that the store actually adopted those sweet rolls as howler rolls so it's always interesting to see how legends and monsters get incorporated into the local not necessarily tourism, but the the business itself. And I think that this was one example. If we again, if we take these legends for their surface value, another speaks of students at a college somewhere in St. Louis. It doesn't say what college it was, but I don't think that really matters. But they were in a, a zoology class, and they were tasked with surveying accounts of predators in Missouri. And one of the students had heard about the Ozark Howler itself. So they went down to the Missouri River and they described seeing a large animal with dark tanged fur and sharp horns that walked into the clearing and started smelling around the the site that they were at because there was fish there. And the students returned to class and gave their report And the students laughed at them, and the professor actually gave them good marks, but said that they shouldn't continue researching the howler because zoology rejects claims of larger undiscovered creatures, and that they should look to the jungles and not Missouri for these types of animals. I think there's a lot going on here, too, because in the study of monsters and legends and supernatural The authoritative stance of science is what gets to describe what actually, you know, justifies these experiences. And I I think that legends and descriptions and sightings should kind of speak for themselves. Uh, 
So I thought that it was interesting to see, you know, even in, especially probably in the early 1920s of academics kind of deciding whether if this is a real thing or not. And I think that folklorists would view it in a completely different way than a zoologist. I think we'll more look at the, the legends for their cultural value, but we're not just going to outright say that this didn't exist. Uh, The last episode about the old hag in which I discussed the experience-based approach to belief, it gives the possibility that people are actually having you know, rational encounters with these things. Probably the most interesting description in the book is the cursed church of Russellville. So to give you a little bit of background about why I think this is interesting is that one of the most famous sightings of a black dog comes from churches in Suffolk, England on August 4th, 1577, in which a black shuck was said to come in a blast of thunder. And again, the black shuck is this black dog of British folklore. And it came to a church and ended up killing a man and a boy and caused the church to collapse. And it said that it actually left scorch marks on the ground of the church itself. Now, did this actually happen? I'm not really sure. Some people will try and ascribe a geomythological explanation for this and they'll say that electrical storms and ball lightning are actually what's the genesis or the origin of black dog folklore basically those are you know they're weather phenomena in which balls of light kind of appear closer to the ground than they normally would and so i mean sometimes They'll we'll use weather phenomena to, to describe folklore, such as you know the bog lights being the the origin of Stingy Jack in Irish folklore. But at the the Church of Russellville, this was a, a place in um, it, it was called Cumberland Presbyterian Church, and they had raised a stained glass window of the Ozark Howler. And it depicted Jesus as raising his hand and the howler bowing to his power. So they got a new minister and he didn't like this stained glass. He he thought it was demonic and evil, but the congregation really did like it. And on Christmas Eve of 1906, the minister broke the window with a brass candlestick. And one of the people in the congregation said that the howler wouldn't take kindly to this action. And the legend says that a week later, the church burned down. So I thought there are some interesting correlations between that and the, uh, the Suffolk churches of 1577. A last account talks about what was called the Sacrifice of Rocky Comfort which tells of how the people of this town, Rocky Comfort, would sacrifice a child to the nightshade bear. So the the nightshade bear is basically an earlier name for the Ozark Howler. And the legend says that people in Rocky Comfort were basically being tormented by this thing called the nightshade bear that demanded sacrifice of a child to it periodically. 
And eventually they decided that they weren't going to actually do the sacrifice anymore because the man whose turn it was to give up his child didn't want to. So he refused and instead of placing the child, he placed a deer with snake venom inside of it. And the nightshade bear ended up eating it, but it shrieked out and the poison started coursing through its veins and it survived it and it said that this is how the nightshade bear actually became the ozark howler itself after ashton's descriptions of the accounts he lists some of the really interesting folk customs that are associated with the ozark howler like i mentioned before its shriek is one of its defining features he conflates this shriek with sightings of the howler so if you see or hear a howler once it's extremely rare but if you see it two times it's actually extremely benevolent it's a it's a good sighting but there is an impending sense of doom because if you see it three times or hear it then it's an omen of death And like I was saying earlier, this kind of connects it to the Banshees and the Kushi. But some of you might be more familiar with the Grimm because of its prevalence in Harry Potter. And you can remember that that was thought to be an omen of death or a a sense of impending doom for for Harry himself. Now, of course, that turned out to be uh, serious in his animagus form. But still, this notion that the sighting or or hearing it is a sense of doom or, you know, predicting your death, there's some obvious similarities there. There's actually quite a bit of spectral hounds in British and Irish lore. And I'm, I'm not going really into Northern European because I think that most of the immigrants that came to the Ozarks were, were typically British or Irish. So... Some of the names of these black dogs are the Moody Doo, the Boggart Dog, the Grim, Hellhounds, Black Shuck, Shaggy, Coon Anuvin, and the Kushi. So <laughs> there's quite a bit, and that's just a few of them. I want to talk about the Coon uh, Anuvin really quickly because they are thought to be the hounds of Anuvin, who are, or what is the other world in Welsh mythology. And they belonged to Arwan, and they were used to hunt mundane creatures, whatever it would be, you know, rabbits, foxes. And they were associated with what's called the Wild Hunt. So the Wild Hunt actually exists as a motif, and it's listed as motif E501 in the Arn Thompson Uther Tail Type Index. And In the Wild Hunt, an Odinic figure usually leads ghostly hunters in the pursuit of souls. So I'm just introducing that to say that this is kind of, I think, what's going on with the Ozark Howler. It's a migratory legend, which is basically how a legend can change from one place to the next and keep its same figures, but kind of morph to the geographic or historical landscape that it now finds itself in. Another of these famous black dogs are the Hellhounds, which are known for making horrible wailing noises. One of them is actually called the Sky Yelper. So again, if the Ozark Howler is famous for its shriek, it makes sense that there's a connection because 
the hellhounds are known and actually named for this yelp, as is the howler. I mean, obviously, howler, that's a reference to the sound that it makes. Like I said, the the shaggy hair that is also described almost always with the Ozark Howler is something that comes directly from these hellhounds, or well, not just the hellhounds, but the, the spectral hounds themselves. The shaggy dog is one of the most prevalent descriptors of these these British hounds. Shag and shaggy are also what they're often called. And the Ozark Howler is described as basically being like a guardian of graves or also following people when they're about to die or, you know, going to their graves after they've died. And that's very similar to the Celtic Kuhn Anuvan. And of course, I was talking about that earlier, but the Kuhn Anuvan is said as being a guardian of the underworld and it has basically the same things. It says that it would guard graves and that it would visit graves after the passing of the people, the person that it was close to. He also gives some ways to track the Ozark Howler. He says that the local folklore says that if you have a chicken bone balanced, 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 balanced on a, it will fall when the Ozark Howler is near, and that's called a howler bone. And ultimately, I think Ashton does a pretty good job of analyzing the role of these because he says that he thinks that the Ozark Howler is a blend of the indigenous native beliefs mixed with those of the British and Irish immigrants. So it's an interesting book. It's hard to find good information about the Howler in all the research that I did. This was probably the best resource. And like I said, I'm taking on face value. Uh, you know, it's a reconstruction of something from the 1920s. So it gives us kind of a, uh, insight into that period more so than how the Ozark Howler operates today. But it's an interesting text. And I think that, you know, if you're interested in the Howler, it's a good place to start. So that marks the end of our exploration into the Ozark Howler. Whether this creature actually exists is up for debate. Regardless, it is a unique mix of the lore brought from the old world into the new. It shows us how post-colonial folklore is often a blend of legends mixing with each other. Ashton's accounts also express a fear of encroaching industrial capitalism and a desire to live with the mysteries of nature. So if you're ever in the Ozarks, keep your howler bone with you because the Ozark howler can come for you at any time. As always, I'm Jack Daly. This has been another episode of The Monster Folklorist. Please be sure to follow me and the podcast on social media and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. See you next time.